This is Adam Lightman Bailey, and you are listening to The Real Talk Podcast. This is Jennifer Rodarte with Compass, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. Hey, this is Lane Johnson representing Compass and Aspen, and you are listening to The Real Talk Podcast. Hello, this is Steve, and we're with Wider Brothers of Compass in the D.C. metro area, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. This is Naomi Klein representing the Compass office in Beverly Hills, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. What up, everybody? This is Chef Jack Harris at the uh, Talk Team Podcast. This is Jade with the Jessica Northrup team from Denver, Colorado, and you are listening to The Real Talk Podcast. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Real Talk. I'm so sorry. I've been on a little bit of a hiatus since my last podcast, which was right before phase two. If you haven't listened to those last two episodes, go ahead and jump in and uh, check them out. Most recent episode was with Amir Karangi, who was the uh, who is the founder, CEO, and operator of The Real Deal, which is the biggest real estate industry-centered uh, and focused publication for New York and LA, and Miami and Chicago, actually. And today, I'm extremely happy to have on board Dylan Pichulik. Dylan Pichulik is the founder and CEO of Excel Property Management, which is a leading New York City property management firm that specializes in managing the assets of co-ops and condos owned by individual and institutional investors throughout the world. So he represents investors from upstate New York, Long Island, all the way out to China. His real estate background started at the ripe young age of 18. Well, while he was a student at NYU, he worked as a real estate agent at City Habitats under the guidance of my current manager, Gordon Gallup. After a stint in being a broker, uh, he joined the City Habitats Marketing Group, which represents some of their larger clients at the time. Uh, Dylan was responsible in overseeing the management of the 34th Street Herald Towers. Uh, Dylan then decided to go deep dive into property management, and he actually joined HFZ Capital Group, uh, operated by a guy named Zeal Feldman. He's one of the more influential people in our world. Uh, at, at the HFC Capital Group, group uh, Dylan managed about uh, so several, several million square feet of uh, condominium and new development space throughout New York City. Uh, their project includes the Bell Nord, One Madison, Devon Condo, uh, C45 Wooster. They also have uh, the Tempo, and uh, I think their newest project is called the Bryant on 42nd Street. And Dylan, in present time, manages individually manages units in uh, Gold Coast addresses. Some of you may know, 15 Central Park West, 111 West 57th Street, uh, the Plaza Hotel, which is 1 Central Park South, the Ritz on Central Park South, Time Warner Center, 1 Madison Park, 432 Park, uh, all the way up to obviously some of the more uh, common, those are the common addresses, but he also manages tons of other addresses that uh, are not considered Gold Coast, but you know are more, let's just say, of quote unquote affordable in New York City, such as uh, 440 76th Street, and maybe we'll talk uh, a few more um, addresses um, once we deep, go deep dive into this show. Dylan lives with his wife, a one year old child, and a 60 pound golden doodle. You may follow Dylan on Instagram at Dylan Pachulik, D Y L A N P I C H U L I K, and follow his company's website, www.xl rpm.com xl-r's and rabbit p is in property m is in management.com so dylan 
Welcome. Thanks for joining, and I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you so much for having me talk. It's a pleasure to see you today. Yeah, no, I, uh, I got to say, just to start off, going back, you know, the first time I met you was at Urban Compass about eight years ago when you came and visited. And, you know, was, Gordon was just, Gordon is always so nice, man. He's the man. He's always so high on, you know, your business and what you do. And he thought that maybe you could help me, you know, on various levels. Um, and, you know, so, so it, it's been, it's been a, a wild ride in eight years, huh? I can't believe it. I, and I, re I still remember going to see the first Urban Compass office over in, on Broom Street or, yeah. or, or Spring, over in Soho. Spring Street. And, and it was very much like cooperative together startup and you guys had the pool table <laughs> in there. Um, so it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's been an insp inspiration to me to watch Compass grow and see that there is hope for great growth in this world just by watching, you know, Urban Compass go from Compass and, and watch it slowly take over the entire landscape of the United States at this yeah. point. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, same on your part. I mean, you've seen, um, I remember seeing your company on the New York Times in like 2011 or 12. And since then, I mean, you, you guys had an a, a insane growth spurt sport on your end too. Yeah, we got incredibly lucky. Excel officially launched back in uh, February of 2012. And the reason I started it actually is I was working for HFZ Capital Group and we were the lender of the Satai Wall Street. Um, the, initial lender uh, the initial developer defaulted, HFZ came in, uh, recapitalized him. So we served as the lender on the property. And the reason I started it is this was back in the, in the boom where foreign investors started buying in large volume here in the city. Yeah. And so we hit the market at the right time, uh, just as the foreign investor story became very sexy. Uh, and, you know, through a lot of hard work, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, um, you know, we developed this great model, which has been a tremendous assistance to the real estate community. Because one of the reasons we started is we said, look, you can go find a building manager, but you can't find someone to manage an individual apartment. And we found that the brokerage community were serving as de facto property managers. And, you know, that's a complete inefficiency. Brokers don't get paid extra to manage. You know, and a lot of, you know, sub zero, it's more of a customer service giveaway. And some brokers were better at it than others. But I saw one by one broker, brokers kind of getting slaughtered and walking themselves into situations because they bound the wrong insurance policy for the owner. And I said, look, there's got to be a better way. Broker doesn't have time to do this. Everyone, the best way to be successful in life is to specialize in what you do best. And if you focus on what you do best, that's where you see ultimate prosperity. And if a broker is trying to arrange for PC Richards to, you know, fix a dishwasher in the most bureaucratic condo you can find, there goes basically two days of your time. Are you going to make money for it by fixing the dishwasher, or could you have hustled two or three rentals in that period of time? So we said, look, there's got to be a third party that does this. We have the right pedigree to do it with my development background and my marketing background from City Habitats. Let's go. Let's go really make a true splash in the market and help everybody in the process. When you started out, did you start out with representing all of HFC's units or did you just start to, did you just have a, a set of clients that you wanted to work with, you know, on your own in the beginning? How, what was your beginning like? So the beginning was, we very much started in true startup fashion. Um, oh, Excel at one point was actually run from under my desk at HFZ. Uh -huh. And the reason we started it is, um, HMZ had a group of investors that were buying into, you know, buying into buildings. And one of the investors came into my office. We were, I oversaw a lot of the projects for HMZ. 
And one of the investors came and said, you know, Dylan, I'm about to get five apartments. What am I going to do with five apartments? I live in Israel. I don't want to be bothered. You know, I'm not going to get a profit in the deal. I'm getting apartments. I don't want to do this. Go find me someone to manage. So we literally scoured the city at the time. Uh, and this was back in 2011 when we started the initial research. And we found one company that managed individual units at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so we went to go meet with that company. And I'm like, you know, like, this is never going to fly with one of these big $100 million guys. Like, they need someone serious, focused, with a real program that really is a true expert in these asset classes. So I remember I went home after that meeting or back to my office, and it was about 11 o'clock on a Tuesday. I was sitting in my office in Madison Avenue, you know, I'm sure underwriting a deal or something for Zeal. And I said, you know what? Maybe I'll do it. And let's see what happens. And the initial exploration was walking around, and, and I met with all the condo managers in the city to see what they thought. And one by one, every property manager in New York laughed to my face and said, ha ha, how are you going to make money? Huh. Literally every single one said, you are absolutely psycho. You're going to manage one apartment at a time? Like, how are you going to do it? And, you know, a normal person would have been defeated and said, maybe these guys are right. These are people who have been in the business for 20 or 30 years. But at the time, I said, my eyes are going to bleed out if I have to make one more Excel spreadsheet uh, <laughs> for a real estate deal. And I said, you know what? I was 26, 27 at the time. What do I have to lose? I didn't have real expenses at the time. I wasn't married and had a baby like now. I said, if I'm ever going to do something, it's got to be right now. And, you know, we started off running it under the desk and slowly sold, you know, started with a couple of HFZ investors uh, and it really caught wind from there. Oh, great. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's true. You know, there's, you can't wait for the perfect conditions to start a business, right? You, you just have to get started and hope, you know, ho hopefully you make the conditions yourself down the road. I think I heard a quote like that one time. So well, that's it. I mean, you, at some point you've got to look, it's like going and diving off a diving board. You, you're either going to jump or not. And you can yeah. stand on that diving board your whole life where you go, you know what, uh, you know, people have done this before and dived into pools before and it worked out. Let me, let me go and see yeah. what happens. And, you know, worst case, maybe my mom will take me back. Speaking of your mom, where are you from originally? She grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh. Uh, and I made it, I moved to New York because I went to NYU. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what did you, what did you study at NYU? Not property management, obviously. Not property management. I, I always, I had an uncle who was a developer, and that was kind of my, the reason I started in real estate, because I remember he was driving around in his car and doing what developers get to do, and most are kind of, you know, cowboys and rough around the edges. And I said, wow, you could actually be, you know, have this kind of like, you know, gunslinging, you know, profession and be well-respected and successful at it. So he kind of got me interested in real estate. But um, I actually studied politics economics and German, believe it or not. Oh, cool. Cool. Maybe so that helps with your German investors, probably. It does, although no one, you know, at this point, I'm so, you know, removed from it that if I try to speak to them in German, they immediately respond to me in English. They're like, we're not, we're not even going to bother. It's not. <laughs> You're being disrespectful to my culture. Yeah. You know, it was cute when you said hello, but after that, you know, let's just talk in English. And you, you know, I mean, you and I, we're all on the same page in terms of being business owners, you know, in the startup field and, and kind of being able to create your own business. It's, there's a, it's always an uphill battle. What were some of your losses that you've taken earlier in your career that you hopefully learned from, you know, while building up Excel property management? 
You know, that was probably one of the hardest things for me. I was always a perfectionist, and I wanted everything to be done seamlessly, and I wanted to look like an expert. But when you start a business, there's no way to do it other than jumping in. And the way to learn is not by being doing it the right way. The way that I learned most was making mistakes and just yeah. learning along the way. And, you know, all of the things that, you know, when we first started, we had no infrastructure. We had no management software. I was literally running it from under my desk. And it was all those mistakes that were made and failure to present properly, you know, things like that that really got us on the right track. Because you'll, you'll learn 10 times quicker from a mistake than you will from a success. Of course, yeah, that's totally true. That's totally true. Uh, so let, let, let's get into today's topic. We're basically in the midst of a pandemic. When back in March 15th, when the city shut down, I think my mentality was, We'll get through this by the summer. The temperatures will rise. We'll probably be better. The pandemic will probably just spread in New York City and not the rest of the United States. I don't think the rest of the markets will be affected. Uh, fast forward today is what, August 8th? I mean, we're, we're kind of still, I, I don't know if there's even a, a second, like I don't even know if we're end, near the end of the first wave. I don't even know if there is a second wave coming in and that they've been saying there's a second wave coming in the fall. Uh, the market is drastically different than what where I thought I was going to be back when I thought well back back in March 15th where we thought this might be kind of like a six month thing. It's drastically different both on the sales and market end, and we'll just talk about New York City rentals today because that's kind of you know the, we, we want to focus on that. Uh, inventory level is at an all time high. A little bit about an article that was published last week, first week of August. I was published by the New York Times, and the title was The Virus Turns Midtown into a Ghost Town, Causing an Economic Crisis. My, I'll, I'll get the link out in my, in my Instagram story a little later, but just my few takeaways from that article, right? We have 7,500 workers uh, at an office building in 1271 6th Avenue. It's right by Radio City Music Hall, uh, formerly known as the Time Life Building. Uh, it houses about 7,500 to 8,000 employees in, in that one building. And according to the report, the day that they measured the number of workers going in, they only counted about 500. There's a food cart that sits directly in front of Radio City Music Hall, who formerly sold, sells about 400 hot dogs a day. And now he's told the reporter that he only sells about 10 hot dogs a day. Uh, Rockefeller Center subway station, we all know. I mean, many of us have commuted there oftentimes. Uh, I was there. Uh, I, I went to have lunch at the Rainbow Room right before the pan, uh, right in, in the fall before the pandemic, and I remember going up and down the stairs. But in any event, it's a major subway station that runs uh, four major uh, train lines run underneath it. It's a, it's a major hub for not just Queens going into Midtown, but also downtown going into Midtown. We got four train stations underneath. Last year, June 24th, 62,312 62, turnstiles swipes were recorded at the station. And then on a comparable Monday this year, June 22nd, the number of swipes was 8,032. So that's a staggering 87% decrease in swipes. You know, they, they say New York City survived the 70s and everybody thought the city was over. And then rampant crime and people, landlords were near bankruptcy, businesses were falling apart. 
Uh, you know, and then we survived the market crash of 87 and 89 and the dot, the dot com crash of 2000 and it, it survived the, the financial crisis of 2008. I, I don't want to sound totally negative, but this is this pandemic is different. This is not a financial crisis. We're not talking about financial wherewithal. We're talking life and death. Like Chris Okada, my, my, one of my guests said, he said, you know, what struck me was he said, we're dealing with life or death situations where people's health are in jeopardy on a long-term prolonged basis, unlike a terrorist threat or Sandy or Lehman Brothers or the dot-com bus. So well, where we are right now is in a historical moment where nobody, I'm sure we'll get out of it, but nobody knows how long this is going to last and if we will ever get out of it or recover fully. I mean, this time around, I'm thinking this is different. So, you know, I, I know I, I talked a lot. Now, Dylan, they just kind of let's switch it back to you. What do you think about this overall time frame that we're in right now? And um, how do you think, you know, what do you think is in the future for us? Great. Yeah, I, I, to add to what you're saying, I read, I think it was in Business Insider or one of these publications. I think they said that 8% of workers are currently working in Midtown right now. <laughs> so of the 100% that are typically here, literally 8%. And I feel that completely. We're right smack dab in the middle of Midtown. Our office is on the corner of 56 and Madison. Oh, yeah. Our entire building is vacant. Um, there's 20 other companies on our floor alone because we're in a big tower. And we're one of three that are actually here. Um, you go downstairs, there's stores open, but any like you know lunch crowd or business lunch crowd restaurant is closed. Yeah. It's, the diners are closed. The delis are closed. You know, dishes where we always would eat lunch. Um, I don't think they've opened back yet. So it's it's definitely a different um, environment, and it's scary. And probably the most embarrassing part of this is remembering how naive I was. That I think it was March seventh. It was the Friday. It was a Friday when everybody realized that things were about to get real. And we had all this like, you know, oh, maybe it's real, maybe it's not real, and maybe it just happened in China, and they weren't prepared, and it will be fine here. But I remember, I think it was March 7th. It was a Friday. And that was the day that everybody was like, oh, my God, we have a problem right now. And I remember kind of, you know, shaking hands with my coworker or fist-thumping her mother <laughs> before we left. Okay. And I'm like, I'll see you guys in two weeks, I guess. Like, we're going to take a little two-week hiatus. I remember I took my, I had this headset that I speak on, like I work at like AT&T or something, because <laughs> uh, I'm on the phone a lot, I'm like, all right, I should bring this home, and because I have calls, I don't want to make my wife upset with all the yelling and screaming, so, you know, because somebody's on speaker, I'll bring my headset, I, remember, I just feel so dumb now, especially as somebody who had so many Chinese clients, and Korean and Japanese, and, and they'd all been through this, you know, starting in December. You know, so they would tell stories, and it's like, yeah, that's not going to happen here, that's not going to happen here, you're crazy. The United States will know what to do. It'll be fine. And then you start hearing the reports from Italy, and that's where I got all the New Yorkers scared. Because we're like, okay, Asia is one thing. You know, China, like, you know, they were surprised by it. They didn't know what to do. By the time it makes it to the West, people will be fine. And then you start seeing all the reports from the Italians that were completely quarantined. And they're like, wait, the West doesn't know how to deal with this. And that's finally what got everybody to understand this is real. And, we, and, it's, and it's, you know, not, like you said, a matter of life and death. But look, on the, on the pandemic, we're in a really hard time. The thing that, the silver lining, I think, in this pandemic is we have, although we don't know the end date of this, 
it's not a, it wasn't caused by the economy. It was caused by an external factor that presumably, whether it's three months from now, probably not, but hopefully, or a year from now or two years from now, we'll have the pandemic figured out and there will be some sort of recovery. The questionable thing is we have a lot of other external factors going on outside of that that can influence our recovery. We have a big election coming up in what, three months? Three months. Four months in November. We have economic, you know, we're already having economic, uh, you know, not hardship, but there's a lot of speculation about what the economy is going to do starting back before the pandemic started. So the reassuring thing for me is walking the streets today. Um, I live in Greenwich Village, and there's a, a bar called Fiddlesticks. I don't know if you're familiar. Of course. I love that. I used to love Fiddlesticks. My wife and I got into business through the pandemic. I mean, because they were the they were one of the first ones in our neighborhood to start the, to go drinks. Oh, but good. We have to support local business, even if that means we start drinking at twelve every day. You know, I mean, we don't want them to close. Right? No, no obligations. That's a great bar. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it there. Um, yeah, it's such an NYU bar. It's it's so you. I like it reminds it. me of home. I mean, unfortunately, I went to NYU and I, I somehow never left because NYU is basically West 4th, West 8th, and yeah. I live on West 11th, so I'm still pretty much NYU mode. Um, but like I said, the promising thing is there will be a termination date to this crisis. What other external factors will, um, will you know, what other external factors are going to, you know, either speed up or slow the recovery, we don't know. But one thing that I do know and, you know, we, we ride in the city a lot in July. We luckily rented a house before the pandemic started because nobody could afford to rent a house after it started. Which, Where did you go? We were in the Hamptons. And, you know, luckily we rented something in early February. We're like, let's go away for a month. We got a few friends together. Um, some of our, you know, family friends and me rented a house. And I'm like, good thing we did that in February because after that, the market, I mean, the, I have a client who has a house. We rent from her a lot up there. I mean, she's getting three times what she got last oh. year. It's, yeah. it's literally insane. It's like, you've got it like, how can you justify the expense? But I digress on that. But one thing I do want to say is, you know, I contemplated, I was driving the high on 495, you know, going out east, and I said, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could be a commuter, you know? Yeah. It's, it'd be a great life. My baby can play in the backyard, and the dog can run around. Yeah. And literally, it took me three minutes to be like, are you on drugs? Like, there's no <laughs> way you're going to go to the suburbs, right? And we spent, you know, the month there, although I'm crazy, so I was back and forth most days. And I said, there is no way I could do it. And, you know, for the motivated and the tough, I mean, where are you going to move besides Manhattan? Where are you going to live? Best city in the world. Really? Are you, are you going to go, look, I know, talk of you want, I was 10 years already. Are you going to sit in the suburbs? Like, I, I couldn't imagine you doing it, you know? Like, all these people are like, oh, New York is over and forget it. But no, I mean, first of all, there's still a lot of people here. And you see even celebrities on Instagram, Instagramming from Manhattan. I mean, there's a great energy even right now. Um, but when the, look, when schools open up, people are coming back. And the one thing that our t all of our tenants are saying across the board, because Excel carries a lot of higher-end large properties, is it's based on schools. They left, but all, all of our tenants are just dying to come back. They're just waiting for the announcement that schools are coming back, so they have a reason. Yeah. So you know, let, we'll, let's talk about schools. And you, come, you, you bring two, two points that you brought up. Schools. And obviously, the energy of New York City. Why do people live here in, from the get-go? Why do people want to live in a high-rent, high-priced city with, you know, you share 200 square feet between two people, almost. And why do people tolerate that? So, it, you know, I think those two points we should touch on. Schools first. We have, we have clients on my end that I represent 
where their initial thought process was, why would I pay, you know, $50,000 a year to take my kid to Dalton if the chances of them just going to school on Zoom is 70%, 60%. And even, even at best, it might be one week on, one week off, and it'll still be Zoom. You know, why, don't, why won't I take my kids to Denver, Colorado, or Aspen, or maybe Maine or Vermont? You know, there's some big transactions happening right now in those markets. And it makes sense from their perspective, you know, we're just going to camp out, quote unquote, for a year, maybe, maybe a year and a half, two years, uh, until things settle back. Uh, but what you just said might be true. You know, there is a vanity of living in New York City, so eventually they're dying to come back, but they're trying to come back. Do you, what are your thoughts on the impacts of the market in the short term if schools are, you know, where, where schools in New York City right now, as of now, is basically 50% capacity? Yeah, I, I mean, that's been, a, that's been something that keeps you up at night since literally March. And what are they going to announce about schools in the fall? Because right now we're doing okay. And, you know, even on the rental activity, which I'm sure we'll address a little bit in more detail in this call, even with rental activity, we're, you know, it's definitely not as strong as it once was, but we're renting apartments. Yeah. But, you know, what's going to happen when the decision is made, by the way, we're not coming back. Um, you know, for the fall, it's going to be Zoom only. And I'm hoping... You know, I'm hoping it's at least a hybrid model because that'll still convince a lot of people to stay away and just take the remote learning option while still allowing like the, the tried and true New Yorkers to be here and have no you know, real reason to leave. Um, but I think that's the single biggest determining factor in what's going to happen in our market in the short term, what's right. going to happen with schools. And yeah, all the scenarios are presenting are not ideal. How a working parent goes from having their kid home one week to school the next week. I don't know how they're going to juggle that. But I'm literally praying every night that there is some decision to keep people from just completely fleeing because there will be a, you know, in my opinion, a, a, you know, quite an exodus of people who are holding out hope that school is coming back and they're still here. That might be the decision for them to say, okay, we'll, we're going to Denver, we'll rent a house for a few thousand dollars a month, and we'll come back in a year. Um, you know, it could be have really negative implications for our market if, if that happens. You know, it, it's it's the work from home culture that is driving these families out of Manhattan. And, you know, I mean, we just I just said Aspen and Denver because in, in like Vermont, because we, I've seen some seriously big transactions that go down out there, which traditionally, you know, is always kind of slow, like the bigger markets, the more expensive Aspen, Vale, uh, Telluride markets traditionally was slow leading up to 2020. Uh, but then ever since the pandemic began, you know, lots of trades are happening and it's kind of been like the all-time high. And again, maybe I'm just speaking on a very small demographic of buyers that can afford the 4 million plus uh, homes. But, you know, with the work from home culture being so rampant, I am seeing lots of homeowners and tenants, especially with children, just move it out to New Jersey or Long Island or, you know, they're just vacating Manhattan for the time being because they can, because it's work from home. And this goes back to the office. You know, you're, the reason why 90% of your office is vacant. People don't need to be in, the, in New York anymore. And not to sound pessimistic, but, you know, that combined with the vanity of, yes, Fiddlesticks is open at 25%. You know, the, the vanity of nightlife is gone. The vanity of restaurants are gone. The vanity of the arts, the, the music, the... The, the events, whether it's networking events or clubs, like organizations, not nightclubs, <laughs> organizations, those are all gone. 
So the, the, the vanity of New York City has disappeared. So yes, schools are important, like you said, but I also think it's, you know, the work, however long this work from home situation, because people that even don't have the kids, like they'll just rent a, a house in the Hamptons for a year, live out there for a year. It's it, the whole vanity of living in New York City has, has diminished. And I think while schools are important, it's the matter of when is when are we coming back to life, right? I think that's more of a bigger indicator of how the health of our real estate market is going to be. Well, and that's true as well, because look, if you take the restaurants away, if you take Broadway away, if you take the concerts away, I mean, you've taken everything away, you've taken away, you know, if you for those that don't have kids, you've taken away all the reason to be here in a lot of ways. Although temporarily, and one good thing about the summer is it's warm outside. So if you go to, you know, Greenwich Avenue, uh, where we live, it's filled with, you know, jazz bands. On the I mean, it's, it's really a great energy. I know. I know. I love it. You know, and, I, I, and I'm glad that this is going to kind of stay a little bit. Um, you know, they're announcing that restaurants will be uh, able to do the same things next summer as well. Um, but you've taken away people's purpose for being here. Yeah. Um, and so I'm hopeful that we do have some solution soon, or at least news that a real vaccine is on the way and will be, you know, kind of our cure-all because, you know, without that, you've taken everybody's reason. You know, schools aren't back and the restaurants are closed. Why would you be here? Yeah. Um, you know, and I think another big topic is people talk about work from home and everybody's going to work from home. I'm, gonna, I'm a small business owner. I hate work from home. <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to my chair. But you can't start with me. Uh, my chair broke on me um, but you know how long can employers do this because yeah. there's nothing there's nothing can replace the in, in office interactions that you have where things flow five times faster because if you have a question you scream it across the room and you have an immediate answer it's not like an employee dodging your phone call waiting for a commercial break so they can you know take your call between you know Gossip Girl or whatever they're watching um, you know there's a lot of lethargy that's already started with employers and employees on work from home because A, how many Zoom meetings can you sit on? I remember at first there was a million Zoom meetings and you could fill your entire day with Zoom meetings. You know, how many do you have now? Like it's been severely reduced. Everybody got sick of it. The efficiency went down and and it's scary as an employer to have employees that are working from home. Like you're, you're no longer a unit anymore. Nope. There's, you know, and, and there's a lot of, important with a company to have cohesion and you know good relationships with your employees like zoom takes away all the small talk and all the camaraderie and things like this you can't replace it and you know i know that i speak to a lot of business owners and we're all on the same page you know maybe we can get we'll get by this period from work from home but i don't think it's going to be this life-altering thing where all of a sudden everybody says okay i don't need offices anymore everybody can work from home i mean you know how much you know how how much less efficient are you are you at home? And and my thing is, I probably operated about forty percent capacity at home. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There's a, my 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 friend Chris Okada, who was a guest on my show too. He's a, a a big time commercial guy, but you know he said it best. You know, nothing replaces the energy of of being in the bullpen. It, nothing does. Nothing does. And and the excitement, you know, uh, you just, you can't replace it. And just the efficiency. So look, some jobs you can do better than others, but you know. Even being in the Hamptons for the short amount of time that we were there, like yeah. you lose all the energy, you lose the traction, you you you've removed yourself completely 
on your focus. Yep, one hundred. And that, that can't be good for for a company. One hundred percent. Let's let's talk about the rental market now. Since I don't want to take up too much of your time, uh, I, I track it pretty much on a daily, weekly, by by bi, biweekly basis since uh, early July. But since phase two opened, we were at about 16,000 uh, vacancies just in Manhattan, not Brooklyn. Now, uh, speaking to Gordon, you know, Gordon said uh, phase three, which was probably late July, we're, Gordon and I were talking. He was saying, you know, in like 1994, we hit 20,000 vacancies. And that was that was probably the biggest amount of vacancies that New York has seen since they kind of City Habitats kind of started tracking it. You know, I mean, City Habitats was always kind of like the lead and leader in the rental market in the, in the early, late, mid-90s, or late, mid to late 90s, early 2000s, right? So uh, what Gordon was saying was, you know, if we hit 20,000, then, you know, th- th- those will be really historical numbers. So fast track, uh, on July, 27, tw- July 22nd, 2020, we, we surpassed 20,000. We were at 20,594 uh, vacancies. And then uh, uh, two days later, uh, we hit almost 21,000. So, we, you know, we, we jumped about 400 more vacancies, and we, we almost hit 21,000 units of vacancy. Fast track to, um, let's just go into August. Last week, August 3rd, 2020, we hit 21,762 vacancies in Manhattan. Wow. You know, as well as I do, leases turn over at the end of the month, right? Most leases at the end at the end. Some brokers will start marketing before, but because of COVID, maybe these won't start marketing as, you know, you don't want, if you were a renter, you don't want 20 people coming into your house two weeks before you, you're about to move out, especially with COVID going on. So, so I, I figured, you know, uh, from July 27th, um, at the end of the month, I recorded 20,933. This is all off Street Easy, by the way, vacancies um, on Street Easy. Uh, so, so 27th on July 27th, we recorded 20,933 vacancies, and then uh, the following weekend, that Monday, uh, 21,762. So over over the weekend, uh, we hit a, a, about another thousand and change, uh, uh, one thousand and change more vacancies in Manhattan. Fast forward to today, uh, we're at 22,477 vacancies. So you know this is surpassing what Gordon saw in the mid 90s. You know, this is surpassing what anyone has seen since data has really been tracking the rental figures just in Manhattan. You know, we're at record high numbers. These are record numbers that we have never seen. Now, when Gordon was in business in the 90s tracking these numbers, he said, you know, well, landlords back then would give three, four, five, three, you know, two, three, four months in, in rental incentives, free rent to get these apartments rented. I think now we're at a point where we have our analytics are so advanced. And our tracking systems are so advanced and we can see the data and we can see the people's traffic flow that we don't have to do that as much as we maybe people in the 90s have did. We're just more efficient, but we're still at a point where we are giving away, we are, we are basically just forced to give away so much in incentives to get these properties filled. Um, wh- what are you seeing in the market today? And then I guess the biggest question is, you know, what do you do with tenants that are being difficult during these times of extremely high vacancies and how are you managing the crisis? Perfect. Yeah. So, I mean, the statistics that you mentioned are, are staggering and, and, they're, and they're definitely scary. And, you know, I think you guys were circulating in an email. I think I got it from a compensation of a big landlord called BLGG. 
Yeah, and I think normally their vacancy list was like eight pages or something, and yeah, 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 it a hundred pages yeah. or something crazy like that. Um, so it's really scary to see um, those statistics. They've but, always had, and I, I don't know if anybody that works there is listening to this podcast, but BLDG has historically had high vacancy because they really push their rents to the top. They price them to the top. But yeah, they, they, they're a prime example. I mean, they, they have dozens of pages of vacancy now. No, it's insane. And, and you know, look, this is, you know, this is why the vacancies are starting to add up and manifest because most landlords are, are trying to target their leases so that they expire in the spring and summer. You know, you want like a June 30th expiration or a July 31st expiration or August 15th or latest, you know, August 31st. So now they're really starting to pile up because, you know, back in the early part of the pandemic, you know, it's just spring and people are renewing because nobody assumed we'd still be sitting here even today. Back in May, we still didn't think, oh, in August, we're still going to be in the same situation. But our vacancies are starting to pile up. Uh, you know, the official vacancy rates that's been reported now, I think is 4%. I, I don't know what it is. And, and I don't know how they actually calculate it with, yeah. you know, information is a lot more consolidated, but I still don't know how they calculate it. But, you know, I'm watching my vacancy. You know, we always carried a very low vacancy rate because we're, you know, we really put a lot of weight on, you know, like, for example, vacancy loss, you know, like we use that as a really big metric in how we're doing our leases. Explain the basics of how that works. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of landlords are stuck on numbers and gross rates. And like, well, no, I'm not going to rent this apartment if, until I get 4000 Like, I want 4000 whatever. You know, we're here paying attention to that vacancy, you know, and a lot of, you know, brokers do as well. But, you know, if I'm going to sit vacant for a month or two months, like me, 4000 I just lost you 8000 which, you know, how much is that dropping at 4000 a month? So we're really paying attention to those things, you know, like the vacancy loss. So we... We really, you know, get aggressive with, you know, reducing price if we have to and things like that. But even in spite of what we're doing, I mean, we're seeing our vacancy rate creep, you know, way up. And, you know, to go to the tenant question, how do you deal with difficult tenants? Yeah. You know, look, the, the most important part of any negotiation in any concept of life is understanding what position you're in, right? Who's got the upper hand? Who has the lower hand? How do we need to spend it? And, you know, for right now, with housing courts still being suspended, they just extended the eviction moratorium for another month oh. into September. Landlords have to realize the position that they're in. And we're watching vacancy rates creep up. They're not reporting as much on, um, on you know, price. You know, we talk about incentives. We talk about vacancy rate, but we don't talk as much about price drops and, rent and rental reductions. Um, but those are well on the way already. And, you know, we talk about it, you know, giving tenants reductions on new leases, uh, you know, to renew their lease. Uh, but on the concept of reductions, I mean, those are starting to creep up as well. And we're seeing many, you know, many cases where apartments are being reduced anywhere from five all the way up to 25%. Yeah. Well, How do you deal with the difficult tenant? Yeah. Number one, recognize the position you're in. And one thing that frustrates me a lot is, you know, the, the principle of the lease. And, you know, we have a lot of owners, oh, I'm not you know, going to negotiate with this tenant, I have a lease. If I have to sue them in court, I'm going to make sure I get every dollar of that lease. Um, you know, or they'll have this, you know, idea of, oh, well, I got 4000 for the apartment before. I'll give a little discount, thirty-seven fifty, but I'm not renting the apartment out for less than thirty-seven fifty. I'll let it to vacant. And we have a lot of these owners, and they're operating, operating more of the position of ego and principle, but unfortunately, that's not the market we're in right now. We've got to play ball with our tenant. Most important for you as a landlord is to keep the cash flow coming. 
you know, our common charge bills aren't going to stop. Our real estate tax bills aren't going to stop. Our insurance has to be paid. Even if your tenant's not paying rent, if they call me and say the AC is broken, we have to fix it. Like we're not allowed to tell you're not paying rent. Like, you know, yeah. let me know when you want to pay the rent and I'll come fix your toilet. Like a landlord can't take that position. So number one, you know, adding humility, you know, humanity to the situation and understanding some people have been utterly destroyed by this crisis. I mean, imagine if you own a restaurant yeah. or you're a cab driver even. Yep. Or, you know, the nail, you know, the nail salon. Any retail. Uh, yeah. Retail. I mean, we were to the dry cleaning yesterday around the corner for us. You're like, I had four customers today. Normally I'd have 50 by this time. You don't need dry cleaning right now, right? Where am I, where am I going? Who am I trying to impress? You know, you don't need to dry clean. Yeah. You know. Men's warehouse went out of business. Men's warehouse. I mean, Zara is having problem. I mean, all the big fashion brands, both my wife is in fashion, so I know a little more than the, the average Joe about fashion. Um, but, you know, it used to be, you know, Chanel was having, you know, those, uh, the bigger brands, you know, the expensive brands, Louis Vuitton, like they were having some retraction in their businesses. And the ones that were doing best were like, you know, ready to wear, like they'd ripped the design right off the runway and copied it at a cheaper price. Like the Zara's and the H&M's and all these kind of guys. Um, and they were doing great before. And yeah. now we're watching them close stores as well. And if Zara and H&M need to retract and downsize, I mean, that's really, you know, that's scary news. Very, very. So we got to realize the position we're in and we've got, we've got to play ball in ways that we wouldn't play ball before. We've got to be understanding you know, and look, some of our some of our clients are understanding. So you know, and they're everyday people. They've also experienced severe hardship. And some landlords are, you know, on yachts in Monaco right now, living a good life. So we've got to add humility to it, and we've got to understand if things go south with our negotiation and our tenant, and our tenant decides not he's not going to pay rent anymore because of it because he's trying to squeeze us. There's not much the landlord can do, and you know, our clients can do something. Uh, how do you advise those landlords? How do you advise them? What do you tell them? Like, let's just say I'm your client. I'm a, I am live in uh, Singapore and I, you know, I, I have a tenant that is now all of a sudden saying, I have a, uh, a, a due to the pandemic, I have uh, trouble paying the rent, even though I might also be renting a $20,000 a month house in the Hamptons. We have that a lot. And, you know, you know, half the times when people are asking for reductions, you're like, you know what, I need a reduction because I unfortunately blew all your rent money on this beach house. Or, you know, the one guy that stuck up the most is I had a guy who called me from Bora Bora to tell me he doesn't feel like he should have to pay the rent because he's stuck in Bora Bora. He's trying to get a private flight out, but he's stuck there. But he doesn't want to pay the rent. I'm like, come on, you're representing everything wrong with humanity. Like, and this is the problem. This is what's causing the crisis. Those it's, people, they probably also drive a Ferrari and they're trying to find no, exactly. no, We have all these stories. And then we gave this guy, we gave another tenant a reduction. I need 20%. I'm not paying the rent unless you give me a 20% reduction. Oh. We had to bend. And then literally the next day, he sends me an email. I know you're out in the Hamptons. You happen to know any available rentals right now. <laughs> and, and it's like, are you, are you serious? And, you just want to go and like punch him in the face because you're like so angry. And you know, look, I'm a professional landlord. My job, I'm I'm very I'm a value add to the community because I don't have the emotion of a of the owner, right? I'm a third party. You know, I can do it in a much more objective way without you know all the frustration and anger that an owner would have. 
but even I just want to, like, I've never wanted to hurt people, and I'm not a violent person, but I've never <laughs> wanted to hurt people so much in my life. Um, so but if, I it. if I have a tenant like that, and I live in Singapore, right, and, and he's paying, let's just say, $15,000 a month, and now he wants to pay eight, or whatever, like, how, how would you, what, what would you say to me? How would you advise me based on the current political situation, e economics, obviously, and what's happening with, like, courts? So the, on that question, the the, the, the tenant still has to pay the rent. So the saving grace is you're still obligated to pay the rent. And, you know, that's something we always tell our landlords. There is a legal obligation to pay the rent. If we feel like we need to get it and, you, and you're willing to chase it, we'll probably get it. You know, the question is, at what point, how much legal costs, and how much are we in the hole that we've got to chase? Right. So my advice to every landlord, and it's, you know, in this crisis, we all are in this together. So it's not like there's some external factor happening only in Singapore that only is affecting that market. Landlords all across the globe are having the exact same issue. The circumstances here are the same basically as are in China, yeah. you know, or, or, any other, or anywhere else on the globe. I mean, you know, everybody fled the, fled the cities, so socially distanced. The wealthy went to their second home somewhere. So we're all together. So my advice would be be patient. If the offer sounds crazy, you know, look, we have two choices. We either play ball so we can keep our cash flow going. I can get you as much money as I possibly can. I can pay your expenses. You know, maybe I've got a good reduction. The good news is, in my eyes, this is going to be a temporary situation. Maybe we take a hit for six months or a year, and things will go back to some relative level of normal. I mean, my advice is we're in a duck and cover situation. Let's do everything we can to protect ourselves and try to – every extent possible to keep this out of court. You know, I don't want you to pay legal fee. First of all, we can't sue right now. You can't. The housing court's not accepting any holdover, meaning your lease expired and you didn't move out, or any non-pay case. We can't sue. Without the support of the court, the landlord's hands are kind of tied. So we got to make a decision. Do I take a 20% reduction right now? Right. Just for the sake of making sure my tenant pays, I get them happy. The minute you give them a reduction, they finally start to pay again and everything is okay. Do I do that or do I, you know, do I take the gamble of I'll sue when housing court opens and we'll see what happens? And, you know, housing court for landlords, especially after last year when that fantastic legislation was passed, you know, <laughs> the tenant housing and civilian. Yeah, screw the landlords, you know, you know, <laughs> landlords don't have bills, they don't have mortgages. Well, every, every landlord just drives a Ferrari and is, you know, flying private jets everywhere. They forget landlord, in a lot of cases, are also everyday people. This is their life savings. This was all the money in the world they had in this asset. And the margins after your taxes are like this, you know? Yeah, then we have taxes. Then every then you get a screwball tenant every now and again. They cost you a fortune. They think everybody's Harry Helmsley and uh, Richard the Frack. I don't really get it. I mean, we legit have tenant have owners who the rental income goes to pay for the nursing home for the owner. Yeah. And if you don't pay your rent, you want to play games. I can't. He can't pay for his nursing home. Yeah, They'll throw him out. Fun. They're not going to say, "Oh, it's fine. We'll get it from you in a few months." They just tell you, you know, come pick up your dad, you know, and and maybe got to keep him at home. So your tenants have to understand that. But like I said, you know, we've we've just got we've got to protect ourselves, and you know, and the, the gamble of you going to court. It's tough right now. Circumstances were hard for landlords before this. What's going to happen when housing courts do open up and we have hundreds of thousands of cases that have to be tried? I mean, like 25% of rent-stabilized tenants alone didn't pay rent. I mean, that's what, a quarter of a million to half a million people? It's a lot.
You know, I mean, how, how can the courts keep up with this? And, and the gamble is how are, how are judges going to rule on these cases where everybody, it's the same problem. There's no intricacy here. No. There's no spectrum circumstance. I lost my job. I can't pay my rent. I refuse to leave. You know, what, uh, like, how are they going to rule on these cases? All right. So let's go back to your, let's go back to rent payments then. Now, the, under the portfolio of tenants that you represent, and these are not rent-stabilized apartments, just for the audience, for your sake. These are not uh, normal run-of-the-mill apartments. I mean, they're probably properties that, oh, like I said, I, some, I, I address some of the buildings that he represents owners in. And obviously, there are obvious normal apartments in Manhattan, too. You know, 600 square foot one bedrooms, I'm sure you manage. Uh, you, I don't know if you manage any studios. I'm sure you do. No, you we do. Have, we have all levels. All yeah, levels. and you, you, have, you probably have, a, you know, modest under 1,000 square foot one bedrooms in the Upper East Side. You know, I'm sure. So, so tell me, out of the out of the number of the people that you represent, I mean, did you have any people that just stopped paying rent altogether? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have people who haven't paid rent since March. And you can send them a letter yelling at them, basically, saying pay the rent. But after that, you can't take the next step. And, yeah. you know, some are, some are doing it because they're jerks, right? They have the money. They they're didn't jerks. lose any income. They just decided they're going to the take money. advantage of the situation. Yeah. And then you have the other half who lost their job, and they literally have nowhere to go. It's either this or a shelter. Um, they had they had no backup. They had no cushion. They have no job. You know, the six hundred dollars extra week isn't going to pay their bills. You know, they have student debt. They have credit card bills. Whatever. Um, but you know, I would say that on a portfolio basis, you know, we probably have like a fifteen percent default rate right now. Wow, astronomical. I mean, astro- You know, maybe not includes people that may be behind in rent, but they're paying, or maybe they're paying partial. I mean, default can mean a host of things, not just paying $0 a month, just to clarify. Correct, exactly. I mean, maybe we'll be paying half the rent right now, but we have a 50% rate. And normally, normally I have a handful of, I have maybe four or five, you know, legal cases that I'm handling for not paying the rent or holding over. Now I could probably have 40 cases of that. Right. If I were able to sue. I mean, it's, it's astronomical. Um, the amount of cases that we have to deal with. And the one reassuring thing is, for the most part, if you make a deal with the tenant, even if it's a little heavier than you'd want, like you're giving them a 20 or even 25% discount, in some cases, we're willing to do it just to keep things going right now. And that will get the tenant to pay for the most part. Yeah. Um, but my advice to landlords right now, try to renew the lease to the extent you can. Even if they're asking for what you think is a crazy reduction, really carefully weigh it. I remember a couple of months ago, we have an apartment at... 58 West 58th Street, um, just south of the plaza. It's right across the street from the plaza. And the tenant was paying 8,500, and they came to us and said, look, we'll pay 6,500. And I remember even at the time, which was probably May, I thought, you guys are crazy. Take your stuff and get out right now. Like, y'all are insane. There is no way on earth that would happen. And now, like, I just want to call them, like, can you please stay? <laughs> no problem. We'll take it. You know? Whatever you want. Yeah, whatever, whatever. You want a month free, too? Like, you know, and I would say, you know, if you have to throw your tenant a month free to renew, do it. You know, if you've got to reduce rent, 20%, do it. I would try to do everything you can to avoid the vacancy because vacancy, you're, you are in the club with, as you said, about 22,000 other people right now. 22,477 as of today. And who knows how accurate that is? I would venture it's probably higher. Like, what, what if I, you know, there's a lot of brokers that still aren't showing. There's a lot of people who aren't, uh, you know, it's not vacant because, you know, the tenant won't let you in, so it's not even on the market yet. Right. Uh, you know, would it, uh, or it's, you know, there's a lot of other circumstances. So I would say it's higher. I would do everything I could to pr- protect myself against a vacancy. If we get a vacancy, we've got 22,000 friends that we're competing against. 
You're probably going to have to pay the broker fee. If you look at concessions, 100%, without a most doubt. people are paying the broker fee. You'd be foolish not to try and pay it. You're going to have a period of vacancy loss where your income is zero until you get somebody, and you're probably going to do a drastic rent discount anyway in many cases. However, there are exceptions. Apartments with terraces, we're not taking too big a hit on. Townhouses, we're not taking, you know, anywhere that you can socially distance. I mean, we rented, um, you know, with, with another firm a couple of weeks ago, we rented a $45,000 apartment. Mm-hmm. It's got a pool, you know. A separate entrance, which is appealing to everybody, but we're, uh-huh. we're still doing these these deals. But you got to be patient. You got to realize this is a short-lived crisis. When you know we when there's a, an end to this, which I I imagine it will be within the next year. I don't think it's too naive to say within the next year we will have some relative level of normal normality returning to us. Mm-hmm. Um, we just got to, like I said, duck and cover and be patient this year. You know, the, the, you mentioned terraces, you know, 440, 76th Street. You have a two-bedroom with a terrace there, but it does compete with Glenwood, doesn't it? Yeah, and look, and that's, you know, one of the things with competition. It's not what the individual landlord's doing necessarily today. We've got to look at what our big landlords are doing. The Relateds, the Glenwoods, the BLDGs, the Manichurians, you know, whoever else, like these big guys. You know, they have to keep these, you know, it's one thing if you're one landlord, but if you've got an entire building on the Upper West Side, like, you know, ground, or Tribeca, you know, ground zero for where the wealthy families live and are now at their, you know, Hamptons or Connecticut residences or wherever, we've got to compete against those guys. And if I'm Glenwood, I can throw my tenants two months of free rent. You know, you have the pockets and the stomach to do it. If I'm an individual unit owner and I need this income to pay the mortgage, or, you know, fund my life, like pay my bills, I can't afford to do these incentives. So it's created a lot of challenges. But I'm happy to report, yeah. 4476, we have a great apartment with the terrace. Believe it or not, we got a $100 increase this year on the apartment. Wow. The tenant's moving out. She lost her job. She can't pay. We said, look, we'll let you off the hook as, far, as long as we find someone to replace you. And she was paying 64 and we got that up to 65 That's great. That's great. Well, listen, I, I'm not going to take up too much of your time. Uh, I, I just want to say on the last note with regards to rental payments, you know, I represent about 275 to 300 owners individually myself. And, and they all, you, most of them own just one apartment. And some of them maybe own one or two. They're all in co-op condos throughout Manhattan. And luckily, I, I have been blessed. And I guess this is, we, want, we all want to end on a positive note. I, I've been blessed where 100% of my tenants have paid. Now, they paid in terms of rent. They paid some of them may have negotiated a little bit as far as price point is concerned because of the reduction in uh, building services, right? Because all the gyms are closed, uh, no common areas, you know, the kids' playrooms are definitely closed. Uh, they, some, some of the buildings have uh, pools and saunas and, and um, locker rooms. Those are all closed. So, yeah, so the reduction in services, so they you know, are trying to get you know, call back and rent, but all of them have paid rent. And I think, you know, especially in New York and your clients – uh, your tenants, my clients, the tenants that I, I have in my clients' properties, their intentions are good. They are professionals. They are uh, highly educated. They, they have good intentions to follow the rules, and they want to be by the book. I would say most people. And I, th- I think that's one of the beauties of owning a piece of New York City, right, is that the people that work in Manhattan – their focus is not to start trouble with their landlords. No, they just, they want to get on with their lives. They want to they want to move up in their lives. They want to produce. They want to make. They want to create. They want to build a dream. They want to uh, succeed in life. And, and and most people that 
have good intentions and they want most people that have goals that want to get there are well-intentioned to be good tenants, you know, that's part or be good citizens in the world. So, um, you know, I would hope that while yes, some people may try to take advantage of the system or maybe you have a little bit of a, 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 you know, some people, a small percentage of people that are in your homes are not paying rent or have trouble paying rent. Their intentions are still good and they do want to make, you know, good with a landlord eventually or make a, make a deal that makes sense for both parties. It's true. And look, the good news is, and look, a lot of landlords have gotten skittish and gun shy about renting the apartments out uh, because of the overall climate right now. But like you said, the kind of person that's attracted to Manhattan for the yeah. most part, is a motivated person. They're hardworking. They're, they want to be, you know, valuable members of society. They're not deadbeats looking to, you know, be professional tenants. You know, our professional tenant category is very, you know, and the professional tenants are, you know, the ones that are just, you know, trying to get one over on the landlord. Um, so, you know, the rate that we have of that is very, very, very small. Right. Um, you know, there's a few turkeys every now and then, <laughs> but I would say everybody else is cooperative and they want to pay the rent. No, nobody wants this situation. Nobody wants their landlord, you know, calling them every day. That's where the rent is, like yeah. shaming them for not paying, you know, asking to, you know, rip apart their financial, you know, current financial picture so we can determine what amount you should actually be paying if, you sh if you're trying to get a discount. I mean, nobody actually wants this, especially at our level in the market. We do, you know, gravitate towards, you know, the luxury to ultra luxury markets. I mean, those are good people. For the most part, you know, they, they want to do the right thing. Right. You know, sometimes they'll squeeze you a little bit because they want to deal and they see what's happening. And nobody wants to be the sucker, right? Nobody wants to overpay for an apartment or nobody wants to, you know, be the only one doing anything. Uh, but they are well-intentioned. You know, they are, you know, we've had a little more difficulty than sometimes with, you know, showings because, as you mentioned, because of COVID. Like, yeah. not everybody wants, you know, random, you know, potential tenants traipsing through their apartment while they're there. Obvious reasons, but the good news in, in this case is, for the most part, you know, we've had success, you know, and we without you know having too many bad situations, and it's again a short-lived situation. It will, you know, be okay soon. We just gotta, you know, roll with the punches in the interim. We'll eventually come out of it. Listen, I know you're a busy man, so I'm gonna let you go, uh, listeners. Again, you can follow Dylan. Uh, at Dylan, D-Y-L-A-N-P-I-C-H-U-L-I-K on Instagram. Uh, his website, again, is www.xl-rpm.com. If you have property or if you have, you're a broker or you're listening to this and you have clients that own property that need property management, that's everything from basic repair work, a dishwasher, and dealing with the board and insurance and the managing agents and the superintendent of that high-rise, uh, you know, $2 million in insurance to fix the sink, Right. That's New York City. Uh, so if you have a client that needs property management, whether it's, again, minor repair work, minor gener uh, general contracting work, all the way up to you do rent collection, security deposits, you do insurance work, you do uh, violations, you deal with tenants, communication. Literally everything. There's only two items we don't do. The brokerage, which stays with the referring broker, and filing a personal income taxes. Literally, Excel does everything else. You sit back, relax, and we send you, hopefully, a check every month. <laughs> So you know where to reach Dylan now. Dylan, thank you for your time. I appreciate you coming on. And uh, next time, you know, hopefully not a Zoom meeting, but an in-person meeting in our office. I can't wait just to load up my taco bar again and, and push it around the city. Just, you know, I, I never realized how much I would miss like a taco bar. But thank you so much for having me. And uh, hopefully soon we'll get to meet face-to-face -face again. All right, Dylan. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you.